0: Have you ever used a memory device to help you remember something? Yeah, sure you have. Uh, You've used what's called chunking to remember phone numbers, breaking down the 10 numbers in the U.S. to groups of three, three, and four. Or you've used an acrostic, like the word homes, to remember the names of the Great Lakes. Or I remember the Ten Commandments with the made up word Kisp Karlk. Or you might use a rhyme or a song to help you remember. I use a song to help me remember the Minor Prophets. I won't sing it, but I can remember Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, because of that song. And so right now on Discover the Word, we are studying the Minor Prophets together. And I would encourage you to use a memory device to help you remember who the 12 are. But as with all things, memorizing a list doesn't tell you everything you need to know who the phone number belongs to. It's good to know where each of the Great Lakes are, not just their names. And it's good to know what each of the Minor Prophets are about. And so that's what Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry are doing in their Discover the Word conversations right now. Over the course of three episodes, they're taking time to look at each of the 12 Minor Prophets. And doing an overview summary of the message each of these writers received from God. Now in part one, we covered Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. This time we'll focus on Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And so the first segment is going to be about Jonah, the fifth of the 12. And we've been saying that the minor prophets are possibly the most obscure and neglected part of our Bibles. And for most of the minor prophets, that would be true. But Jonah, well, I think most of us have at least some knowledge of this prophet and story of his encounter with a great fish. But there is a lot more to the storyline and message of Jonah that Bill and Elisa and Daniel and Rasul will uncover.
1: Well, we're in the middle of this interesting journey. I think interesting is a fair word. It's not an easy journey, but it's an interesting journey through the 12. Now, when I say the 12 in the context of our current conversations, what are we talking about?
2: The minor prophets.
1: What makes a minor? Are they less important? They're short <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in stature.
2: and. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it's not like the minor leagues as opposed to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is just because they tend to be much shorter than the books that we call the major prophets sometimes people completely overlook the minor prophets and it's easy to do because there's not a lot of narrative there there's not a lot of story and there's oftentimes a lot of darkness and things like that but just the very fact that these books are in the bible means That they're part of those writings that are inspired and are profitable. And part of our job is to figure out what makes them profitable. Where's the benefit as we get to know our God better? So we're going to start today, thankfully, in probably what is the most familiar of the minor prophets, and that would be Jonah. Mm. Jonah... Uh, is not a story about a big fish. A big fish plays a part in it, but that's not the big idea. And if you really understand the book of Jonah, you would understand why it really isn't a Sunday school story for kids, although that's where most of us became introduced
3: to it, I would guess. What is Jonah about? The anti-prophet. So the prophet that does the opposite of what prophets are supposed to do God comes to Jonah and asks him to go to a surprising group of people to preach to them, and he decides to run the other direction. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you could call it even the disobedient prophet, and it is surprising. We do kind of gloss over that in our Sunday school renditions, but... It really is a big story, almost of free will and sovereignty and God's ultimate justice and love for people.
1: In spite of Jonah's disobedience, God sovereignly still gets his purposes accomplished. And I think that's a tension we live with sometimes, too, because... We're not always 100% obedient all the time. Yeah. I think a little bit of honesty doesn't hurt anything once mm-hmm. in a while. And mm-hmm. we, too, can have confidence that even in moments where we may be failing, God is still able to accomplish his purposes. And I think that's encouraging and helpful. Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, you mentioned that he goes to a kind of an unexpected audience for his message. Let's talk about that a little bit. Where is it that he goes
3: eventually? Yeah, he goes to Nineveh, Yeah, which is surprising because most of the prophets that we've met so far and most of the ones that we're going to talk about go to either the northern part of Israel or the southern part of Israel yeah. and preach. Yeah. And Jonah's being asked to go to the enemy yeah. and not just any enemy, but an enemy that was known for more brutality than any other empire to date and so it makes a lot of sense why he wouldn't want to go there too
2: i think i'm probably not the only person who's so geographically impaired because i am deeply geographically impaired you know nineveh was part of an empire right the assyrian
4: empire the assyrian empire and that's
2: different from babylon Yeah. yeah okay
4: it was before babylon but in the context especially in this area it is important to note that it would have been the first of the kind of major global powers. And you don't get to be that without a type of brutal Mm -hmm. violence. That that, Daniel's
2: talking about. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that Daniel
4: was talking about. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I try to not defend, but at least understand about Jonah is when you think about the history of the Mm -hmm. Northern kingdom and it essentially being conquered by Assyria and brutally repressed people just moved away. And these and this was the land of Israel. What kind of jarring traumatic frustration might there be with the prophet of God who mm-hmm. knows that this is the legacy of these people and these Assyrians that have done this to the people that are his family, are part of his yeah, yeah. community.
1: Yeah, I've compared it in the past to a Brooklyn Jew in 1945 being sent by God to Berlin to preach to the now former Nazi regime. I mean, it's hard for us to understand the level of animosity and hatred and disgust even mm-hmm. that Jonah as a Jew, an Israelite, would have had for this Utterly ruthless pagan kingdom. On the geography side, Elisa, when Jonah runs from God instead of going to Nineveh, it says he went to Tarshish. Now, our best understanding is that Tarshish was on the west coast of Spain, almost 2,000 miles west. That's Nineveh was about run. 500 <laughs> miles east. Mm. So, you know, he couldn't have gone any further in the opposite direction.
2: Ends of the earth, yeah. Yeah,
1: and that is the extent to his willingness. To disobey God because of his hatred for the people. I kind of threw you a curveball a minute ago, Daniel, when I said, What's this story about? And you started telling us about Jonah and going to Nineveh. Mm-hmm. All of that is absolutely true. But I think at its core, the book of Jonah is not a story about Jonah. And it's not even a story about Nineveh. It's a story about God. Yeah, God is the main character in this book. He speaks the first words in the book and he speaks the last mm-hmm. words in the book. In between, he calls a prophet. He sends a storm. He rescues some sailors. He creates a fish. He commands that fish, and the fish obeys. He commands the storm, and the storm obeys. The fish and the storm obey. The prophet doesn't obey. It's a fascinating story. But then he rescues and forgives Nineveh, and then he creates a worm and a plant and a wind. And so throughout this whole book, this is a story about God and the degree to which he will go to rescue people we don't like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's at the heart of the message. The message of the book of Jonah, Jonah preaches his message to Nineveh, but the actual story and message is for Israel so that they can see their hearts exposed as Jonah becomes kind of the prototypical Israelite uh, who hates their enemies, Mm -hmm. and God loves their enemies. So... It's a fascinating story of contrast and hate and mercy and love. I think it's one of the greatest expressions of what mercy looks like that we find anywhere in the Bible when this wicked, wicked kingdom from the king down repents, Mm -hmm. even to the point where they put sackcloth on the animals as if the animals, too, could join in the repentance. The thing that I think uh, blows me
4: away about this story is... in verse 10 of chapter 3 we read when god saw what they did how they turned from their evil way god relented mm-hmm. of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it then verse one of chapter four but it displeased jonah exceedingly yeah. and he was angry yeah. like yeah this is such a unique moment in the prophets where the people respond completely in his reaction
3: his anger. Yeah, and that's like the big surprise turn in the story because mm. up until then the assumption we have of why Jonah doesn't want to go there is because well he's probably concerned for his own safety, right? This is an enemy, he probably doesn't want to go there cuz he's worried they're going to kill him or, you know, do something or whatever, which is probably partially true. But then we get to chapter 4 and he's so displeased that he basically yells back at the Lord, "I knew it." I knew you were the kind of God that was going to show mercy to these people, and I didn't want you to show mercy to these people. Yeah, he actually quotes Exodus
1: 34,
3: that text we've
1: talked about so many times, where God reveals his heart as compassionate and long-suffering and loving-kindness. And Jonah said, I knew you wouldn't be able to help yourself. You just have to forgive those people. (laughs) That's why I didn't want to go. I was trying to protect you from doing something you would regret later. Again, (laughs) It's easy for us to sometimes actually believe that we know better than God does. We're wrong. We don't. And Jonah is a classic example of that kind of heart that believes yeah. in God and to some degree knows God, but doesn't know him well enough. And it
4: really makes me ask the question, who are the Ninevites for me? Yeah. Yeah. You know. That's exactly we probably right. all have our version. Yeah of Ninevites that were Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to go there and I don't want to see Mm -hmm. them turn. And this really challenges us because you see this kind of caricature. It's easy to just dismiss and just kind of give it to Jonah as being this, you know, very terrible person. But at the end of the day, I think for some of us or all of us, really, we have somebody that it'd be like, if God Mm -hmm. forgave them and we wiped the slate clean, (laughs) i
2: struggle with that. -hmm.
1: You can almost Mm -hmm. imagine Jonah because Jonah actually asks God to kill him eventually. It's almost Mm -hmm. as if he's saying, I don't want to live in a world where Ninevites get to be saved, you know, and that speaks to a degree of wrongheartedness that I think you're right, Rasul, all of us need to hold up the mirror to our own mm-hmm. hearts and ask ourselves the same question. Yeah. Who is our Nineveh? Who is it that I would rather die than seek, become a brother or sister in Christ? And it doesn't have to be a culture or an ethnic group. It could just be an individual or a family or a neighbor or that person at work that just kind of half drives you mad. But I think the lesson of Jonah for us is intensely practical as we have to ask some questions about our own hearts and our own
3: hates and uh, see where that takes us. Yeah. Um, The book is read in the afternoon service of Yom Kippur, Mm -hmm. or the Day of Atonement, because of the theme of repentance. On that day, Jews are supposed to identify with the Ninevites in their plea, and certainly not with Jonah. So that's the main invitation is to identify with the Ninevites and not with Jonah. And then just the way that Jonah is such in sharp contrast with God's desire. And it's those who are outside of Israel are the ones who show the fear of the Lord. And Jonah is the one that stands in sharp contrast Mm -hmm. with that. Hmm.
4: i going go front. That's convicting to me. (laughs) I immediately identify with the main, you know what I mean? The person is like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a perspective. How about recognition of the incredible way in which we deserve condemnation and yet mm-hmm. yeah. huh. God has offered complete yeah, that's forgiveness? Yeah, it's true. We
3: flipped that around, didn't we? We all made it about, well, who are my Ninevites? Right. Yeah.
1: Now, before we wrap up this conversation, one thing I want us to do in this set of conversations is notice that each one of the minor prophets we're going to talk about this time around uses a different kind of communication to express their message. Jonah actually uses narrative. That's one of the reasons I think we're drawn to Jonah, because we know with Jonah, we're going to get a story and Mm -hmm. we like stories. So we're comfortable with that kind of minor prophet, but we're going to see each of the other minor prophets we're going to look at this time around are going to use a different tool for communication. And I think that'll make it kind of interesting as we go through. So keep an eye out for that as we go forward.
0: Yeah, we said that the book of Jonah is the most familiar of the minor prophets, and in a lot of ways it is. But there are nuances to its story and message that uh, the more you read it, the more you study it, the more you discover that it's not completely about what we often think it is about. And in fact, after we finished recording that segment, Bill said that many times when he's teaching and preaching about Jonah, he mentions a frustration that he often feels with the book.
1: When I've taught this in Bible conferences, I get to the end of chapter three, and I tell them, if it were up to me, which it's not, the book of Jonah would end right here. This is a great ending. Jonah obeys, finally. He comes to Nineveh. (laughs) He preaches. The whole place, from the king all the way down, repents and turns to God. What a great ending. But no, we have to get not only the anti-prophet, but the anti-Billy Graham who goes and preaches a crusade and is angry because people get saved, you know. And when we get to the end of chapter 4, what I tell him is, you know, I didn't want chapter 4 to begin with. But now that we've had chapter 4, I want chapter 5. I want to know what comes next.
0: Yeah, a chapter 5 would definitely give us a little more closure on the story, wouldn't it? and uh, so before we move on let me take just a moment to refer you to another more in-depth study that we did of the book of jonah here on discover the word a while back daniel led what i thought was a really helpful two-part extended look at this fifth of the minor prophets it's called surprise because even though we think we know jonah there are things about him and his message that are super surprising encourage you to go to our discovertheword.org website, and when you click on the search tool up at the top of the page, just type in Jonah, and you'll be taken to that study called Surprise. I think it'd be worth your time. And there actually is a pretty extensive archive of our past studies available there at discovertheword.org. I hope you'll check it out. Well, next, we're going to learn of the connection between one of the minor prophets and Christmas. Yeah, a famous prophetic quote about where Jesus would be born, O little town of Bethlehem, from the message of the minor prophet Micah. It's part of his message, the hopeful part about the coming of the Messiah. But there's more to his message than just the basis for one of our Christmas carols. And so prophet number six in the collection of the twelve, Micah is our focus in this next segment.
1: We're going to look this time at one of the minor prophets who actually has a voice in the Christmas story. Would you be surprised to find the Christmas story in a minor prophet? Do you know what I'm referring to? Thinking about a little town of Bethlehem, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking this time at the book of Micah, and in Micah 5, verse 2, uh-huh. it says, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are the smallest among villages, out of you shall rise a scepter to rule over Israel. And it's actually quoted in Matthew chapter 2, in Matthew's telling of the birth narrative of Jesus. And actually, Matthew quotes Micah again in Matthew 10. So Micah gets a couple of references in the Gospel of Matthew, which as we've looked before at the Gospel of Matthew, shouldn't surprise us too much since Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other of the Gospel writers. So let's look at Micah. And just to get us started, Elisa, would you read Micah 1, verse 1?
2: The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay,
1: so... Moresheth was a little Judean town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So this is southern kingdom. If you remember your northern kingdom, southern kingdom split. In our previous conversation, we saw Jonah, who was from the northern kingdom of Israel, which had been persecuted by Assyria, and that was the connection there. Now we're with a prophet in the southern kingdom, and he's going to be talking to the southern kingdom and to Samaria, which was that kind of demilitarized zone between Israel and Judah. So that kind of gives you your geographical headings for this one, Alisa. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. (laughs) And again, it's interesting because you have a Judean prophesying against Judah. So Mm -hmm. he's talking to his hometown, his home territory, and it seems especially to Jerusalem. Hmm. So I think that that might provide a little bit of interest to us. Now, one of the things we saw that was interesting about Jonah is that he used what style of communication in telling his story?
2: I think you said narrative, and that stuck with me because it's a story, and we get that.
1: Yeah, this Micah is very poetic, He uses a lot of poetry, and not poetry like Mary Had a Little Lamb, blah, blah, blah. It's not that rhyme and meter poetry, but Hebrew poetry. Daniel, can you kind of help
3: our listeners a little bit with the difference between Hebrew poetry and Western poetry? The primary thing that jumps out is the use of parallelism, which means that there's an idea, and then the next sentence or phrase builds off of the idea or contrasts to the idea or offers a different perspective than the idea. So there's all these couplets, these two lines that go together throughout. And sometimes it's it's that simple of one line and then the next line. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a couple lines compared to the next couple lines. But the idea is you have two parallel ideas that can Mm -hmm. compare, contrast, offer different perspectives, and it kind of helps bring emphasis to an idea by doing that.
1: Yeah, what you're describing very well for us, Daniel, is what is called a poetic device. Mm -hmm. Poetry, in our culture, we think of it as rhyming and having a certain rhythm and things like that. But in Hebrew poetry, it used poetic devices like, as you rightly said, parallelism. And the book of Micah is written in a lot of parallelism. So you'll see a lot of, as you said, repeated or contrasted ideas to help him communicate his
3: message. Yeah, just looking at verse 2, for example, mm. line 1, listen, all you peoples. Line 2, give heed, O earth. And so yeah. you have listen, give heed, or the next line, and let my Lord God be your accuser, my Lord from his holy abode. And so you have this repetition of, yeah. of God's name, or in the first part, this repetition of give heed or listen. It's always a little dangerous
1: when we say, Why? Why is it like that? Because we don't know what their motives were. And to read motives back into them is to make assumptions we can't really prove. But one of the things that I've heard frequently, and y'all can check me on this if you disagree, but one of the things that I've heard frequently is the reason that this parallelism type thing was used is because it was a good memory device It would help people to memorize the material easier. Mm. And in yeshiva schools, which were Jewish training centers, there was a lot of memorization that was done. And so these poetic devices gave them kind of hooks to hang their memory on. And that may have a, a part in why some of this is this way. So let's look a little bit at Micah and let's look at his writing. One of the things about his prophecy is that it has three main messages, and each of those three messages has three main parts. Each one of them has a part about the people's sin, a part about God's judgment, and then there's the hope piece, the hope mm-hmm. piece that one day there will be an ultimate restoration of these sinning people now in our first set of conversations on the minor prophets we found that hope even Mm -hmm. though there's a lot of judgment going on in these books hope was a recurring Mm -hmm. theme wasn't it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
2: Mm -hmm. hope and we get lost in the judgment and think a lot of us come away from the minor prophets even the major prophets thinking god's just a big meanie you know just a mad god And we forget the whole concept of justice, that our God is a just God, that he cares about restoring people and taking care of them and removing the evil that ruins us because he loves us. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: and that his justice, in a sense, is an expression of his love because he knows what's bad for us. And so he'll discipline us and chasten us to keep us from venturing into areas that would be bad for us to go to. When we think about judgment as condemnation, it presents a very dark picture. When we think about judgment as discipline, like a parent disciplines a child, it takes on a different tone, I think, and a different feel. Hmm. Yeah, or even the sense of
3: reordering, yeah. or resetting, or recreating, or purifying. Yeah. So many times, you're exactly right. We get caught up in this idea of like God wants to bring out a wooden spoon and hit us on the backside. But instead, what we see over and over again is like, no, God is a good God who deals with injustice and evil. And he's not going to just sit by and let people destroy each other and to build up the wealthy on the backs of the poor. And all of these themes that show up throughout the minor prophets, it's like, God's going to deal with evil and injustice, but the way he deals with it is to get rid of evil and injustice and then offers hope of a new way, a new creation, a new life that he offers.
4: And I would say, too, that depending on whose perspective we are thinking about, even the statements of judgment can be looked upon as hopeful. Yeah, For those who are being crushed by these leaders who are exploiting them, Mm -hmm. who are misusing God's name in chapter 2 and they're false prophets, And, you know, so someone who's hearing that and is being victimized by that, for them to hear Micah say, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. right? And that's actually a salve to their soul to hear Mm -hmm. someone actually standing up and Mm -hmm. saying the right thing in the midst of a society in which the wrong thing is being exalted and too often happening.
1: Yeah, that's really good, Russell. And Mm -hmm. to kind of build on that a second, in our first set of conversations, it seemed like most of the declarations of judgment were against idolatry. There's a lot of idolatry and struggles in that area. Mike is different because he only incidentally deals with the problem of idolatry. He focuses more on the social sins of the people and the way they're victimizing the poor. And like you say, Russell, that would have been really encouraging if you were among the poor and you were hearing God calling out the people that were oppressing you. I mean, that would be tremendously hopeful.
2: Is it true that Micah was himself, or I don't know what we really know about him, but not exactly wealthy? You know, was he more of a a different social status.
1: He's kind of the contrast to Isaiah. Isaiah was of royalty, he was of the priestly group, he was high society, and he had that in his resume. Micah was a country guy, and in a sense, he was kind of the poor speaking to the poor and offering them hope and encouragement in the midst of difficult times and difficult spaces. And one of the things that's unique about Micah among the minor prophets is that he did have a lot to say about the Messiah, the coming promised Messiah. And the most famous of those is the one we talked about earlier with where Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5, verses 1 and 2. But he also talks about how it's Messiah who ultimately is going to restore the nation in Micah 5, Verse 3, could one of you get that for us?
4: Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites.
1: That key is return. The rest of his brothers will return. The woman bearing a son plays off of the Bethlehem, which is in verse two and predicts the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who will ultimately restore and return Israel to its proper place. And I think as we look at this, Once again, we see a message that to us can be very confusing and we can kind of get lost in the weeds of it because it's an ancient story and an ancient book. But it's talking about things that are still current conditions today. Still today, the rich victimize the poor. Still today, the powerful victimize the powerless. Still today, those with status and position victimize those who have no status or position. And still today, we need to hear the voice of a just God who promises hope to the victimized and offers judgment to those who
3: make them victims. And there's one more piece, too, that I I see in here, and that is just the reminder that God keeps his promises, which shows Mm -hmm. up throughout the book, too. Mm -hmm. Micah ends with verses 18 through 20 that really just capture the heart of God, who is a God like you, forgiving Mm -hmm. iniquity and remitting transgression who has not maintained his wrath forever against the remnant of his own people because he loves graciousness. He will take us back in love. He will cover up our iniquities. You will hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will keep faith with Jacob, loyalty to Abraham, as you promised on oath to our fathers in days gone by. Yeah. That's how it ends. So it's yeah. this reminder yeah. of God's faithful love and his forgiveness, and also that he's a God that keeps his promises even when we don't keep ours to him.
1: Yeah, that's a great place to close for this one, Daniel, because it begins, who is a God like you? And that's actually what the name Micah means. The name Micah means, who is a God like you?
2: Huh?
1: <laughs> and so he kind of ends with his name, but wow. directing our attention to the God who is Greater than our injustices and our mistreatments of one another.
0: All right, and there you have an overview of the prophet Micah and how his message is a great reminder that God always keeps his promises, even when we struggle to keep ours. Distinctives of minor prophet number six of the 12 Micah, our focus in that segment of this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. Well, to get us into the segment of the study about the next minor prophet, Nahum, Bill wants to know how you feel about reruns. I mean, some cable channels and some streaming services are built on reruns of old TV shows. Personally... Sounds like Bill has mixed feelings about reruns. There were some programs I couldn't watch those reruns
1: enough. I just loved watching them over and over and over (laughs) again. There were some of them. Once I'd watched it once, I didn't
0: need it anymore. Uh, Which kind of camp do you fall in? Well, we will find out how the rest of the group feels about watching reruns, and then we'll look at another minor prophet, one that may feel like a rerun. But is Nahum a rerun, or is it more of a sequel? Same characters, similar storyline, but, yeah, well, that part of the conversation after a short break for this word about Our Daily Bread University. Well, in that part of our study, Bethlehem was a key part of Micah's message. And in the next segment, uh, we come back to the city of Nineveh. And so it is obvious that geographic location really is a big part of understanding the minor prophets. We've stressed many times before in our studies, the impact of place. Well, Our Daily Bread University has a really helpful course that I think you'd also thoroughly enjoy. Head over to their website at odbu.org and search for the free course, Biblical Geography Basics, in the search bar up at the top of the screen. Join Discover the Word friend, Dr. Jack Beck, and explore the absolutely vital relationship between what the Almighty has to say, even through the Minor Prophets, and the place about which he says it. Location always matters, and Jack Beck has a special way of making that come alive. ODBU for Our Daily Bread University, odbu.org, and Jack Beck's Bible Geography Basics is worth looking into. Let's listen to how Elisa and Bill and Rasul respond to Bill's question about reruns. Do you like them? Can you watch shows over and over again? Or is seeing it once enough for you? Uh, which kind of camp do you fall in?
2: Probably the second one.
0: I would say it depends. There were
4: definitely some key episodes of shows where I'm like, I could watch this mm-hmm. all the time. like yeah. Or a movie, mm-hmm. too.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think for me it depends if there's like a hook that once I know it's going to happen, it's like, eh, it kind of loses the intrigue, right? That like if it's a mystery or something and you already know who did it at the beginning, it's like, oh, okay, this isn't as interesting, but...
2: I got to take it back, Daniel. You're making me think about this. I have watched some shows... Over and over, hoping it would turn out differently. It's kind of goofy. I'm a little out Guess of body. Guess what? It doesn't turn out different. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Exactly.
1: Well, we're going to get a little bit of a rerun because we're going to look at how we pronounce it here in America as Nahum. But in other parts of the world, they pronounce it Nahum. He's going to be the second prophet to address specifically the sins of the nation of Nineveh. Now, we heard Nineveh just recently, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Who was talking Mm -hmm. to them? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah, yeah. And this is going to be a second go at Nineveh, which tells us that even though God showed great mercy to them, when Jonah went and preached to them, the situation over the long term did not improve. And they have to be dealt with again. Jonah preached and Nineveh repented. About 150 years later, Nahum preaches. To Nineveh, and about 40 or 50 years after that is when Nineveh finally gets judged by God for their evils as a culture and as a society. The reason I think that that timeline is important is because we tend to be people of the immediacy. We tend to be people of the right now, and we want everything taken care of and we want it wrapped up in a bow this afternoon. God works on a different timetable than we do. Mm-hmm. He accomplishes his purposes in different ways, not only in judgment, but also in mercy. And one of my favorite verses, would you read 2 Peter 3, verse 9? Because I think this, to me, has to be in the background anytime we talk about God's judgment. So would you get that for us, Rasul?
4: The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance.
1: Yeah, sometimes it feels to us like God's being slow, right? Mm -hmm. But he's not being slow, he's being patient. And he's being patient because he's giving space for repentance and space for people to turn to him so that they don't perish. And that is the wonderful characteristic of God's patient mercy. And long-suffering love. And and I think when we talk about judgment, as we have to in the Minor Prophets, it's good to be reminded that the God who judges and is holy and is just is also a God of very patient mercy. That kind of helps us to see it in a different light, doesn't it? Mm-hmm.
2: That's powerful. We spent a good amount of time on Jonah in a previous conversation talking about how offensive it could be to us to see Ninevites repent, to see the evil repent. But they did. But that's some time before.
1: Yeah, that's generations later Yeah. Uh, when Nahum comes on the scene. And
2: it's disheartening <laughs> to see humankind fall away that yeah. way over and over, as did Israel, as do we.
1: And that as do we is not... throwaway line either. I think every time we see a piece of humanity being reminded of something that requires repentance, we need to ask ourselves, where might I fit in this story? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Nahum. And Elisa, would you read verse 1 of chapter 1 for us?
2: A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, The Elkishite.
1: The Elkishite. That's the only real piece of information we have about him is that he's from Elkosh. Now, nobody knows where that was. And there are all kinds of theories about it. My favorite theory is that it was actually in the Galilee. And Hmm. when he came on the scene, they changed the name to recognize their favorite son, they changed it to Capernaum because the name Capernaum means Kapher Nahum, the village of Nahum. Oh, that's a good one. To me, yeah. that kind of works. Yeah. This is another prophecy that deals with the sins and the failings and the brutality of the people of Nineveh. And it builds on Jonah's previous visit, because if you'll remember, we didn't talk about it, but Jonah's message was pretty brief, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, five words. Yeah. (laughs) In Hebrew, it's like five words. In Mm. English, it's, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, that's his whole sermon. Mm -hmm. Here we have Nahum going into much greater detail, but it's important for us to understand that even a message of judgment offers comfort. And in this case, the message of judgment is directed to Nineveh, but the comfort comes back to Israel because they were the people who were suffering at the hands of Nineveh. And knowing that God is going to deal with the Nineveh problem, if you will, kind of brings some comfort to the people that they've been tormenting so much.
4: Yeah, I think we get this in our own context in our conversation earlier about Jonah. Bill, you mentioned the fallen Nazi regime and how many people globally rejoiced at the collapse of this empire that was trying to take over the world and eradicate certain folks from off the face of the earth, especially Mm -hmm. Jewish people. And so there is this aspect of the fall of The bad
3: guys, so to speak, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. good news to those who are suffering under their tyranny. I think, too, it starts off as a pronouncement on Nineveh, but then Nineveh is hardly mentioned. And it's almost as if Nineveh is being used symbolically in this to represent all empires (laughs) that are built Mm -hmm. on injustice, where injustice is built into the very fabric of the empire and Nineveh is a, just a great example at the time of completely sinful, overbearing, exceedingly oppressive, politically building up a few on the backs of the many. And as a result, it's totally destroyed and never rebuilt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this symbolic picture of God deals with oppressive empires. And regardless of what time of history you live in, Mm -hmm. this book still speaks to that.
2: It's really good, Daniel. It might make us uncomfortable when we, as you were saying, Bill, see ourselves and our own role in oppression and being an oppressor. But God's loving justice and is just loving, you know, really spells it out. I'm just reading ahead to the End of the book, chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. And then verse 19, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. Wow. Mm, Yeah. And then all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. Yeah. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Yeah,
1: God is patient, but that patience does have a terminus, it does have an endpoint, and we see that with all these different empires throughout history, whether it be Nineveh or Babylon or Greece or Rome or Nazi Germany or whatever the case might be, all of these empires that are built off of cruelty ultimately go into decline and ultimately pass out of relevancy, even though they may still exist in some form, they pass out of relevancy and out of power and authority this message to Nineveh becomes a message that we need to listen to. Mm-hmm. We talk about all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What makes this profitable? Well, it's a reminder to all of us of God's patience and long-suffering, but also of his inevitable mm-hmm. justice, because he is the judge of all the earth, and he will ultimately do what's right, and he will make all the wrongs right in his time. One
4: thing I can't help but notice in these two different depictions of Nineveh, both looking at Jonah and now Nahum is the way in which oftentimes the community responds as a group has a strong influence on the individual's response. Because the people collectively repented, it made it easier for individual families to repent. Mm, Because Mm -hmm. in Nahum, you know, the people were stiff-necked and collectively decided to ignore the warnings of God. It made it easier to ignore that. And of course, we all have personal accountability to respond to God on our own. But it just makes me wonder, like, how is the environment that I'm in, how might that be shaping me to mm-hmm. ignore certain things that God is calling me to or yeah. to be more sensitive to it based on what's happening around me? And I think sometimes in a very individualistic society, we can just kind of not believe that my environment, is having any kind of impact on me. And I think these two Mm -hmm. stories, because it's like he's addressing Nineveh as a city, as a collective, Mm -hmm. not just the individuals in it. I
3: wonder too if there's an aspect of this story that just challenges any of us in our little tribes of the ways that we try to use might or violence or power or strength to get our way. And like that's what Nineveh is most known for. And I wonder if that's another way that this little book (laughs) speaks to us today in a very challenging way of any time we're using might and violence and power and influence to try to lift up ourselves over others. Maybe we're actually acting more like Nineveh than the people of God.
0: Yeah, again, it's Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire that appears in the Minor Prophets. First it was Jonah, and now Nahum. Similar messages, but not really a rerun, more of a sequel. And as Daniel said, sometimes Nineveh is us, and we need to hear the message as well. Minor prophet number seven of the 12, Nahum. All right, on to number eight now, a prophet who first states one of the Bible's major ideas. I've heard it called one of the Bible's great ideas. It's stated here, In the message of this prophet, and then it's picked up on and repeated and quoted several times by New Testament writers. And it's an idea that shook the world around the time of the Reformation. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. It is a major idea in the message of the minor prophet Habakkuk. Now, it occurred to Bill that he forgot to do something in that last segment about Nahum that will be helpful to get back to as we talk about Habakkuk. And so, Let's listen as that's where Bill begins.
1: I failed to do something in our last conversation that I said we were going to do, and we didn't do it. We didn't talk about the communication style that Nahum used. And actually, very similar to Micah, he used poetry. Mm -hmm. So in the three we've seen so far in this set of conversations, we've seen narrative with Jonah, and then Micah and Nahum both using poetry. And the reason I wanted to get us back into that groove a little bit is because this time we come to Habakkuk. Mm -hmm. I was in the UK once, and I heard a pastor pronounce it Habakkuk.
2: (laughs) Yes, I've heard that too.
1: But he uses yet another communication style, and his communication style is a dialogue between Habakkuk and and God himself. Mm-hmm. So we go poetry, we go narrative, now we go dialogue. And that, once again, is gonna give a different flavor and a different feeling to this little prophecy. And it is little. To just kinda kick us off, would somebody read Habakkuk or Habakkuk 1 verse 1?
4: I got it. The prophecy that ha- Now I'm like it's torn between two pronunciations. <laughs> Never had a problem with it before. The prophecy <laughs> that Habakkuk, the prophet, received.
1: Okay. And we hear that kind of opening introductory statement, and then it goes immediately into dialogue, doesn't it? And it's not Mm -hmm. just dialogue. Mm -hmm. It feels a lot like lament. Daniel, could you read verses two and three for
3: us of chapter one? How long, O Lord, shall I cry out and you not listen? Shall I shout to you violence and you not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Mm. Why do you look upon wrong? Raiding and violence are before me. Strife continues and contention goes on.
1: Yeah, that sounds almost like a psalm, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, those lament psalms, they're very much half of a dialogue Mm -hmm. where the psalmist, and in this case, the prophet, are directly addressing God, whereas... Nahum and Jonah directly addressed Nineveh, and Micah directly addressed Judah. Habakkuk is talking to God.
2: Well, it is interesting in that, you know, these are minor prophets, and they're receiving visions from God to give to the people in different time periods, etc. This is a prophecy that he received from God, but then it goes straight into what you're saying, dialogue. So it's really different.
3: Yeah. Some people have even pushed back on like, is he a prophet in the Mm -hmm. same way because Mm -hmm. he doesn't accuse Israel or a different nation or something, (laughs) right? Like we would expect him to do, or he doesn't say that he speaks on behalf of God, which Mm -hmm. other prophets claim. It's just a conversation with him and God.
1: Yeah. Which in its own way gives this A unique weightiness Mm -hmm. because, again, much like the Lament Psalms and much like the book of Lamentations, he's calling God to action. He's not calling people to repent, to forestall God's action. He's calling God to act. And he's asking
4: questions that we still very much ask today. Mm -hmm. It feels very fresh. Verse 3, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do Mm -hmm. you tolerate wrongdoing? why do I cry out violence and you do not save? Those are ripped off of today's headlines as we struggle Mm -hmm. with the things that are around us. And we're a generation that are more aware of suffering around the world than any generation in the history of the world because of these Mm -hmm. devices that we have in our hands that Mm -hmm. can in real time know and learn when some tragedy happens. And so I think that question has only been elevated in our hearts and in our minds God, what's going on and why aren't you doing
2: it? Yeah, and it's one of the greatest arguments against God in the next Mm -hmm. generations as well as if he's a good God, he wouldn't allow all of this.
1: It echoes Philip Yancey's Where's God When It Hurts, Mm -hmm. whether it's hurting on an individual level or a family level or a community level or a national level or a global level. We constantly want to know, where's God in the middle of all of this? And sometimes the answer is what we saw in Nahum. Sometimes he's being patient Mm -hmm. for reasons
3: we may not be aware of. And Bill, you mentioned earlier that he's calling God to action and... I'm not disagreeing, but I would almost say he's actually calling out God. Yeah. What's the deal? What are yeah. you doing? Why aren't yeah. you doing what you're supposed to be doing?
2: The subtitles in the passage or actually call it complaints mm-hmm. that Habakkuk is complaining.
3: Yeah. Wow. It
4: makes me remember that phrase sometimes, be careful what you ask for, yeah. <laughs> because he asked these questions and then <laughs> verse five in chapter one, the Lord is like, oh, don't worry, I hear you. I'm sending the Babylonians to judge yeah. you for all yeah. the sin that yeah. you're doing. And then yeah. Habakkuk is like, wait, <laughs> no. what? Hold yeah. on. Now yeah. I got a whole other
1: complaint. How do you yeah.
4: use them <laughs> to come exactly. and get us? They're even more wicked than we are. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me help you. Yeah, and
1: there's the sense in which because God is sovereign, he at times in history chooses to use a worse people to discipline his people. And that seems upside down to us. But again, God's dealing with, information we don't have access to. And one of the things, I think the word complaint is really good, Elisa, because the name Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you want to pronounce it means embrace, though some say it can be translated to wrestle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would be really appropriate because we're seeing him wrestling with God. I mean, he's wrestling with this stuff about his God that he really doesn't understand. Now, aside from his name, we don't know anything about the guy. There's a lot of speculation. I mean, one of the nice things when there's not much information is we can fill in the gaps with our guesses, and scholars do that all the time. But a couple of things that people have speculated. First of all, some have speculated perhaps he was a Levite and a musician, because much like some of the Psalms, chapter 3, verse 19, carries a musical notation, the same musical notation you see at the heading and the superscription of some of the Psalms. In the apocryphal book, Bell and the Dragon, Habakkuk is dragged by the hair and miraculously transported to the lion's den to feed and minister to Daniel, (laughs) which is a fantastic thing to think about. But, I mean, that's an apocryphal book, so uh, you can decide how much weight you want to put in it. There's also a rabbinic tradition that says Habakkuk was the son of the Shunammite woman, that Elisha had dealings with back in the Kings. So there are a lot of interesting theories of about this guy. Mm-hmm. But the one thing we do know about him is that of all of the prophets, of all the minor prophets, only three of them are actually designated as prophets in the title of their book. It's Habakkuk, Haggai, and Zechariah. Notice it says the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Mm-hmm. And so even though you're right, Daniel, that he doesn't act very much like a prophet as we understand the term. He's one of the few that's actually designated with that prophetic title. I think some of that stuff's kind of interesting to feed the imagination a little bit. It doesn't carry a lot of weight because it's all just speculation, but it's interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. In the book of Habakkuk, as he dialogues with God, there are three big themes, three big messages. The first one is judgment on Judah and Chaldea which is going to become Babylon. The second, and this is where we want to spend the rest of our time, is on the necessity of faith. And then the third is searching for answers to the struggles of life. And that's where this feels so very practical with all those why questions you were talking about before, Rasul. Would somebody grab for us Habakkuk 2 verse
2: 4? See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness.
1: Yeah, or the just shall live by faith is the way it Mm -hmm. used to be in the old King James. That verse changed the world about 500 years ago because it was reading that verse in Romans where it's quoted in Romans chapter 1 that caused Martin Luther to, I think, almost accidentally from a human perspective, trigger the reformation because it was no longer the righteous shall live by his deeds or his works no the just shall live by faith and that verse we did a series on that verse a few years ago here on discover the word because it's quoted three times it's quoted in romans it's quoted in galatians and it's quoted in hebrews and i think
4: something that is so valuable in us going to the original source of that very seminal phrase and verse The righteous shall live by faith is the actual context Mm -hmm. that it's initially in, which is very much a response Mm -hmm. by God to Habakkuk's concerns about what's happening in his world around him Mm -hmm. and the way in which injustice seems to be conquering over justice, right? And so in the midst of that, God tells him the first part of verse four, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith, right? Like, so there's this aspect where it's like, I know what you're seeing around you is disorienting, even maybe disillusioning, but don't lose heart, don't lose faith.
2: In fact, in verse three, that's exactly it. The revelation awaits this appointed time, it speaks of the end, it will not prove false, though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. And that's just screams of what we were talking about Mm. in our last conversation with Nahum, that God is patient, Mm -hmm. we seem as slow, Mm -hmm. and so he's asking us to be faithful to his character of patience. Is is that what you're saying, Russell? Yeah, and I
4: think that it's so relevant to see that this important doctrinal insight initially and even today has practical implications for what we see around us and what Mm -hmm. we struggle with. Like it's Mm -hmm. not just a theological otherworldly conversation about how we are made right with God, although it is certainly that, But that truth also ought to permeate and it's invited for us to think about what that means for how I think about my day and what's everything that's going on around me that I don't understand.
3: Yeah. And it's like and it's offered. And what might be helpful too is thinking about what it's in contrast to. So the righteous will live by faith. So what are the unrighteous living by? Mm -hmm. And throughout the story, he describes unjust economic practices where the wealthy are becoming more wealthy on the backs of the poor. Mm -hmm. He calls out slave labor where people are being treated as animals and that still exists today and irresponsible leaders enjoying all their booze and their food Mm -hmm. and their sex and, but not caring for people, the pursuit of power at all costs, Mm -hmm. all of those, like we could be talking about today (laughs) and not just at this time. And so it's like Mm -hmm. the righteous will live by faith The unrighteous are living by their confidence in money, confidence in power, confidence in pleasure, confidence in all the things that if we're all honest, we struggle with as well. And so Mm -hmm. it's very practical for then and very practical for today. I think all of that's really good. I think you guys
1: are really getting a handle on this book. And really what it comes down to, to us as individuals, is God is speaking to Habakkuk, an individual, and he's saying to him a message that we could take to heart ourselves. I know this world is in chaos. I know this world is confusing. I know this world can be distressing and disillusioning. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And still today in the midst of a, a world just as messed up, if not worse than the one that Habakkuk was living in, God still looks to his who have come to him and says, trust me, we wrestle, we wrestle, we wrestle. He says, trust me.
0: And that is an outgrowth of one of the most important ideas in the Bible. And it's first stated by Habakkuk and then restated by several other biblical writers. The just shall live by faith. Minor prophet, major idea of well, the Bible's great ideas and the message of prophet number 8 of the 12 Habakkuk. Well, one more minor prophet in this episode, and one of the unique things about him is not only what he said, but also who he's related to. Discover the background and the message of Zephaniah after another quick reminder from Our Daily Bread University. So all throughout this study of the Twelve, I've been encouraging you to explore Christ-centered, biblically focused courses from Our Daily Bread University. And not only can you get an in-depth look into the stories and characters and places in the Bible with their courses, but you can also earn valuable Bible ministry certification at minimal cost. When you go to odbu.org, you'll see on the homepage that you can choose the low-cost plan that offers premium, unlimited access to all the exciting resources from Our Daily Bread University, including the Foundations for Biblical Ministry Certificate. If you're looking to get more involved in formal ministry, this four-phase program may be the perfect fit for you. Learn more by heading to odbu.org and clicking on the section that says Certificate in the middle of the screen. Again, that's at ODBU for Our Daily Bread University, odbu.org. And now to close out part two of this journey through the Minor Prophets, We come to the ninth of the 12, the prophet Zephaniah, and it's his focus on the day of the Lord and some other key distinctives that I think will make him stand out in our minds. And by the way, there will be a reward for listening all the way to the very end of the podcast this time, so don't bail early. All right, let's listen. We've been on a little
1: sidetrack along with our discussions of the minor prophets in this week of conversations, and that sidetrack has been communication styles, and so far we've seen several different ones. We saw narrative in Jonah, we saw poetry in Nahum and Micah, and we have seen dialogue in Habakkuk. Now we're going to come to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a name that we find actually frequently. It's 18 different people in the Old Testament are named Zephaniah. Huh. And we still don't know anything about this dude. You know, <laughs> his style is actually much more oratorical. Hmm. It's a good thing to bring that up just because it reminds us that all of these guys lived in a day when communication was primarily oral. Mm-hmm. History was passed down not as much through writing as it was through oral tradition. And so a very polished oratorical style is what we see in Zephaniah. And we want to look at his little prophecy to finish off this week of conversations. Elisa, could you read for us Zephaniah 1 verse 1? I'm giving you all the names to have to read.
2: The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, the king of Judah. I always was told, just read it with confidence. Yeah, Yeah,
1: read it like you know what you're doing. And people say, (laughs) wow, I didn't know it was pronounced that way. Um, (laughs) Now, what's interesting from the start here is that we've had some of these prophets. We weren't given any information about them whatsoever. With some, we might have the name of the village they came from. Here, he gives us his genealogy four (laughs) generations deep. And by going four generations deep to Hezekiah, what is he
2: telling us? Well, he tells us when he lived.
1: Yeah, he tells us when he lived, but also he's telling us he's royalty. He's He's of the royal line because Hezekiah was a king. And so now he's not reigning. Josiah is reigning in Judah, but he is of the kingly line through which Hezekiah came. Mm -hmm. That is unique among the prophets now. Isaiah came from a priestly line, and we've seen a couple of the prophets that have had a priestly background, but this is utterly unique among the prophets to have one Mm -hmm. who came out of royalty. Historians tell us that it seems as though he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, and he ministered about 50 years after Nahum, and that his message is primarily to Judah during the Babylonian crisis. Mm. So to kind of get us started thinking about this whole Babylonian crisis that Jerusalem is undergoing and these very difficult days that Zephaniah is going to speak about, the key verse, I think, is maybe chapter 1, verse 7. Would you read that for us, Rasul? Be silent
4: before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited.
1: The key phrase within that key verse is day of the Lord. And that's a phrase we've found in the prophets before, and it's a phrase we'll find in the prophets yet again. What's it talking
3: about, Daniel? The day of the Lord is the day that God finally deals with evil and injustice and wipes it off the face of the earth.
1: Yeah, it's the day where the Lord brings himself to bear on the brokenness of this world because Zephaniah focuses so much on that. Some scholars have referred to him as the compendium of the prophets or kind of the summarization of the prophets because he repeats and summarizes a lot of the judgment and salvation material that's common in all the different prophetic books. In a sense, if we could put it in the vernacular of our day, Zephaniah is kind of the cliff notes of the prophets. It kind of gives you the big picture Mm -hmm. of what the whole story is about and the fact that it's not just about judgment. It's also about salvation. It reminds us that one of the themes is what? Love and mm-hmm.
3: forgiveness and rescue. And hope. Yeah. And Bill, you just mentioned the overall structure or message that we've heard over and over again. And it might be worth just pulling that out. It's the idea of God's justice and the fact that he's going to deal with evil. He's going to wipe away all that is wrong, sin, brokenness, evil from the face of the earth. Yeah. Because of his great love and Even some of the language here in Zephaniah in chapter 3 about the fire of God being used for purification, Mm -hmm. so to make things better, to recreate, to Mm -hmm. purify. And that that's not just for the people of Israel and Jerusalem, but for all nations. Yeah. And that's kind of the theme we've seen repeated over and over again in each of these stories is that, no, God takes evil and injustice very seriously and he's going to deal with it. And the way that he deals with it is through his love and his purifying fire yeah. that leads to redemption and hope for us and for all nations.
2: Yeah. And Daniel, I'm really struck by, again, back to build this verse seven, he sacrifices he mm-hmm. consecrates, he doesn't ask us to, or you know, condemn us to having to undergo it. He, he has prepared the sacrifice. He has consecrated those he's invited. It's not about us being good enough, he does it. That's
1: yep. right, Elise, and I think, Daniel, to your point, it's interesting because we don't often think of fire in a positive way, except yeah. for to get warmth. Yeah, We think of it as destructive. We don't think about the fact that in the scripture, fire is a purifier. It Mm -hmm. cleans the dross off of precious metals and things of that nature. And in the same way, God uses the fires of trial to purify us and to help us to become more like Jesus. So I think there's some great imagery there that we don't want to lose sight of as we think about this day of the Lord that is when God will again impose his will on his broken creation and the broken people who make it up.
4: I'm struggling with something. Maybe y'all can help me because I hear that we see these two different dynamics not just in Zephaniah, but throughout the scripture, throughout the minor prophets of judgment, grace, hope, not all is lost. There is something that's going to be restored. And even the judgment is in some ways a sign of comfort for those who are experiencing being under the heel of oppression. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that it feels like in our culture when we mostly hear about the day of the Lord or about any kind of God breaking into our world to set things right? It's seen in a negative way. Like there's a sense of anxiety or a sense of fear that we have about these kind of eschatological themes. Because it seems like to be the exact opposite of the way that it landed on the original readers. Where do you think that's coming from?
1: I think that's coming from the fact that people don't describe it like Daniel did a few minutes ago. They don't describe it as an extension of God's love. They describe it as an extension of God's holiness or his justice. And we can't deny the fact that it is an expression of his holiness and his justice, but it's ultimately his love making wrongs right and broken people whole and all those things. When we see his judgment slash justice as an expression of the depth of his love for us, It changes how we view all of those
2: images and maybe i so agree with that bill maybe too there is just this innate part of us that we know we are the oppressors Mm. that we deserve judgment and the only way we stand there before god and not freak out is by remembering his love is by remembering he provides the sacrifice, Mm -hmm. is by remembering he consecrates us and invites us because we don't deserve it.
3: That's right. Yeah, And I wonder too, just thinking back on so many different ways that I've heard people describe things like God's wrath or God's anger or all of you sinner worms that God can't look at you, but oh, thank goodness Jesus is in front of you, so now God can accept you in. And just like all of that language And then also the language of God's judgment and wrath being used as, well, me and my church, we're in, and we're in God's love and God's good graces, but he's going to burn everybody else. So often, too, that this language has been used to reinforce the tribes that Mm. we've talked about in these stories. It's the exact opposite. You don't pursue power and might and influence at all costs on the backs of others, right? That's like the primary message of all these minor prophets. And yet we've used language like the wrath of God and the judgment of God to say, I'm in, I'm in God's good graces, Mm -hmm. and I can't wait for him to destroy all those evil people out Mm there. I've probably said things like that myself at times. Mm -hmm. So we're actually modeling to people The exact opposite of what the prophets are trying to tell us. And
1: what we end up doing is creating a caricature of God Mm -hmm. instead of displaying the character of God. That's why we said in a couple of conversations ago, anytime we're going to look at God's judgment, we need to look at it against the backdrop of his character. That he's long suffering toward us why because he's not willing that any should perish in i think it's ezekiel god says i take no pleasure in the death of the wicked Mm. but that they would turn and live i mean Mm. that's god's character That's Mm -hmm. God's character as he describes himself to us. And I think if we can use that as the backdrop for our understanding of even things as dark as judgment, it brings light into the conversation and it brings hope because even in this very, very dark picture of judgment in Zephaniah, there's the brightness of Israel's ultimate restoration. And he talks about God's sparing of the remnant four different times in this short book Mm. because it's not just about judgment, it's also about hope. Mm. And that message of hope needs to keep coming through mm-hmm. as we look at these very interesting, sometimes very difficult books.
4: That's helpful, y'all. Thanks, because I was struggling with that. The other thing that I see that is that piece of hope is in verse 9 and 10 in Zephaniah chapter 3. Bill, Hewitt mm-hmm. mentioned mm-hmm. the way that Zephaniah points to the remnant, but then it even expands beyond that. In That's Verse right. 9, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure mm-hmm. speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones hmm. shall bring my offering. Cush was uh, basically the horn of Africa where we think about yeah. East Africa, Ethiopia, Eritrea, hmm. that area. And he's hmm. saying that this thing that's happening that I'm going to do on the day of the hmm. Lord with the people of Israel is going to be extended throughout the the other nations as well yeah. will be blessed. And that sounds like good news to me. Yeah.
1: yeah. It also feels like a response to the first of the major prophets, Isaiah, in his vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah 6 says, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And it's almost as if God's saying, I'll take care of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fix that That's in good. my mm-hmm. time.
3: Yeah. And just to really capture like the beautiful heart of God in this, we haven't even talked about probably one of the most beautiful verses in all of the 12, mm-hmm. which is Zephaniah 3:17. Mm-hmm. The Lord, your God is in your midst, mm. a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Wow. This idea of God singing over his beloved Mm -hmm. as he brings them out of this evil and brokenness and darkness Mm -hmm. and into this relationship with him. And that really makes this book good news. Yeah, for a book full of dark
1: prophecies of judgment, that sounds pretty hopeful to me.
0: Yeah, important reminder to end this episode here on Discover the Word. Hope is always an element of each of these minor prophets' messages. Judgment, discipline, those are part of the message. But reading about that always with God's love and hope in mind, that's really important. Well, thanks for taking the time to join the Discover the Word podcast around the table with Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, Elisa Morgan, and Rasul Berry for part two of this study called The Twelve, Going Through the Minor Prophets. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the Scriptures. Challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And as a reward for staying with this episode all the way to the end, I thought I'd save something a little special for you that may make you smile. Now the group, for the most part, does a really good job of staying on track and focused. But of course, they have their moments, and they had one in that last segment about Zephaniah when they got to the part about the key verse of the book. And if this is the key verse, well, this is a very different conversation. The key verse in
1: Zephaniah is chapter 1, verse 17. Who would like to read that for us? I got it. Okay. I will
4: bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung.
1: Okay, that was really nice, Rasul. And I gave you the wrong <laughs> verse to read. Man. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> I'm was sorry. Say, yes, <laughs> I'm there <laughs> you go. Let's okay. Have lunch. This is where Brian makes us better than we are because he'll cut that <laughs> out. But. Uh, the key verse is not that verse. The key verse, I think, is maybe uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Would you read that for us, Rasul? Sure.
0: Yeah, and then he went on to read the actual key verse. The beauty of editing that can make those bloopers sound like they never happened. Well, thanks for being part of part two of this study of the 12 minor prophets. In part three, they discover the word team looks at the final three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi and then highlights just how important they are to the bigger story that the Bible is telling. So join Daniel, Elisa, Rasool, and Bill as they wrap up this series about the 12 in our conversation next time, right here on Discover the Word. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.